You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. It's February 2008, 199 years after the birth of Abraham Lincoln, and today we'll talk about Lincoln from the perspective of before and after his presidency with Timothy S. Good of the National Park Service, author of a new book on the Lincoln-Douglas debates and editor of We Saw Lincoln Shot, 100 Eyewitness Accounts of the Assassination. Join us for the before and after of the Lincoln presidency when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Everyone faces conflict at home, at work, in the community, in the world. Fix Your Conflicts is a show about how to fix those conflicts with practical tips and techniques. Doug Knoll brings to the Internet airwaves the first of its kind, a show that teaches peaceful resolution to life's daily battles. That's Fix Your Conflicts with Doug Knoll, broadcasting live every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Studio A. Marissa, are you ready yet? I know you can hear me. You are not missing school again. Marissa! You trying to be a nobody or something? Let's go! Alright then. Hit it. I know you can hear this. Hey guys, move closer. Girl, I am not leaving. Hey, whatever it takes, don't let your friends drop out. A real friend can make all the difference. Cut that noise, yo! I'm coming! Took you long enough. Thanks for the help, guys. For more ways to help, go to OperationGraduation.com. A public service message from the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. It's February 2008, and as mentioned a moment ago, the 199th anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln this month. We'll talk about that a bit. But first, Lincoln being a lawyer, it's time for the legal disclaimer. This show has nothing to do with East Carolina University, except for raising my momentary adrenaline level, because one of our department administrators did not get her paycheck today. It's a Friday. And when this show's over, I've got to hang up the phone and call someone in payroll and uh, do some behind kicking to uh, to make sure that things get done properly here for uh, the people who work harder than the professors at East Carolina. Uh, legal, that's right. There is no connection with the show in the university. It's uh, not speaking for the university, not speaking for the guests, certainly not speaking for the National Park Service or anyone else uh, involved, just us talking with you today. Well, uh, before we get started with anything else, another reminder is that the show will go on. We're looking forward to uh, 
finding out how and where precisely, but keep tuning into this uh, website and looking for uh, Civil War Talk Radio. If for whatever reason we have to move elsewhere into the, the great ether of the, the Internet, uh, somehow Googling Civil War Talk Radio ought to get you to uh, any location we might be at. But hopefully we'll still be here in the same place for many, many months and years to come. This past uh, month or so has been an exhausting one here at World uh, headquarters of Civil War Talk Radio, as uh, it has seen the launching of the Did Lincoln Own Slaves World Tour, in which I have been driving the trusty uh, white station wagon from place to place, or trying to fly from place to place, and it gets harder all the time. This past weekend, uh, or this past week, earlier this week, I was in Springfield, Illinois, with our guest today, and we'll tell you what we saw there. But getting home turned out to be uh, an astonishing ordeal that began at 9 in the morning and ended at uh, 2 a.m. the next morning. Uh, still not fully recovered. I'm uh, rambling at you aimlessly here as I try to uh, regain my bearings after this uh, grueling week of uh, travel and public speaking. But there will be more to come if you uh, hear this soon enough. Come and join me. I would be happy to meet uh, meet you in person on February 20th at the Regulator Bookshop in Durham, North Carolina at 7 p.m. on March 1st, Saturday, at Appomattox, uh, uh, the Appomattox Courthouse uh, National Historic Site, uh, the annual Longwood Seminar. It's a free seminar day long. I will not actually be presenting, just hawking the book and listening to other people talk about the Civil War, but come by and say hello. And uh, if you're anywhere within driving distance of Western Virginia, it's really... Uh, a worthwhile uh, worthwhile day. And then on March 5th, uh, Greenville, North Carolina, the home of Civil War Talk Radio at Barnes & Noble, our one and only full-service bookstore. Uh, we could use several more. Uh, but I'll be there at 7 p.m. and uh, uh, come and ask questions in person. So that's the uh, schedule up ahead. Well, let me uh, bring on our guest, and we will uh, uh, jointly reminisce about our last meeting two days ago. Tim, are you there? Uh, yes, I am, Jerry. Wonderful. Um, Tim Good is uh, a management uh, assistant with the National Park Service, but uh, has a long connection with Lincoln and Lincoln Sites. And this past Wednesday, uh, past Tuesday, I Oh, I've lost track of the dates. It was Tuesday, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, Lincoln's, Tuesday, Tuesday. Lincoln's birthday. Uh, Tim and I had the uh, joint uh, privilege of giving the George uh, Painter Lectures in Springfield, uh, which are an annual event on the occasion of Lincoln's birthday. George Painter was a National, National Park Service historian at the Lincoln Home for a number of years, and when I first began working in the Lincoln world at uh, the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, George was one of the first people I met in the uh, in the historical community, uh, the Lincoln historical community. He was very helpful to to me getting started. Uh, it really helped me get my feet on the ground in this uh, in this field. And then, unfortunately, it was taken from us uh, at a young age. Uh, and uh, he is honored each year in the George Painter lectures. And I, I felt really. Uh, very privileged to be able to to give one of those lectures this year and and remember George for for all of us. 
Uh, Tim, you were at the Lincoln home, uh, in, but not when, when George Painter was there. Is that correct? Uh, that's right, Jerry. I arrived uh, shortly after, and as you heard me say at the beginning of my remarks, uh, of all the employees that, uh, of all the former employees, George held a special place for the staff. There was not an employee that they spoke of with more respect and admiration uh, than they did George. He, he really was uh, a great loss to, to the Lincoln world. Um, uh, his passing, I should say, was, was a great loss. Now, uh, Tim, give us some of your background. But how did you get to work at the Lincoln home? What did you do before that? Uh, that's an excellent question, Jerry. I have to admit, uh, when I was uh, in high school and even part of college, my interest was much more in the post-World War II American history. But I began working at Ford's Theater in the summers. I grew up inside the D.C. area and had a similar experience to what Sandberg said, and he kind of grows on you. I had my past 12-minute talk down at Ford's Theater and thought that would be all I would need. But... After almost every talk, a visitor would approach me and ask me a question, and much of that first summer I spent uh, saying, I don't know. But after working there for several summers, I began to amass a uh, vast collection of knowledge on Lincoln and the assassination because of all the visitor questions. And I then worked on the Civil War Soldiers and Sailors System with the National Park Service, uh, worked at the National Mall, which included the Lincoln Memorial, and then was able to obtain a position at uh, Lincoln Home National Historic Site, which really introduced me much more to the pre-presidential Lincoln years in working there. And I underwent a similar experience in Springfield that I had in Washington, D.C., where the simple 12-, 15-minute tour uh, prompted a lot more questions from visitors and again, I, much of that first season I spent saying, I don't know, um, but uh, forcing me to look up more, research more, and again, expand my knowledge and understanding of Abraham Lincoln. Well, you've got books that represent those two bookends of Lincoln's career, and I guess I'd like to start with the, uh, the first book, but the second one in time. Uh, when you were at the at Ford's Theater, you were still in high school at this time, or uh, in college? I was in college when I was at Ford's Theater. Yeah. Okay. Uh, because you mentioned uh, the the book you wrote grew out of a a college paper. That that's not a that's quite unusual. How did that happen? Uh, Valparaiso University had a senior senior honors course, uh, which which was two semesters, and they allowed. Uh, history majors to pick a topic of interest and to write a thesis. And I remember the uh, second semester of my junior year during spring break, I went back to Washington, D.C., and I asked the historian at Ford's Theater, I said, you know, I'd like to do this project. I don't really have any idea of a topic. Do you have any, do you have any ideas you might be willing to share with me? And Jerry, he, I never forget, he opened a file drawer and pulled out a folder which contained approximately 40 eyewitness accounts of the assassination, many of which had never been published before. So I recognized there was great value in pursuing a paper on the Lincoln assassination, and eventually I was able to collect about 130, 140 eyewitness accounts and use those to write the undergraduate honors thesis in my senior year. So you had this 
this paper based on primary sources or a collection of primary sources. That's correct, yes. Uh, and given the, the great public interest there is in Lincoln's assassination, uh, you must have had no trouble just, just going to the first publisher and getting this book out. Well, I, uh, as a rookie in the field, I made the mistake of mentioning in the cover letter uh, when I submitted it to publishers that this was my undergraduate honors thesis, and I had, I think, at least four, maybe five rejections. Then the next time I sent it to a publisher, I just removed that one particular sentence, and it was accepted uh, right away. So I, I learned a very valuable lesson in that, Jerry, and uh, then University Press of Mississippi accepted it and then published it. And I, I think that's uh, a lesson we can all take to heart. Don't admit that this is a college paper because... Yes. People will look at look askance at it. Yes, very true. So, so this this collection it is extremely valuable to anyone who wants to understand what happened uh, uh, on, on that uh, day and, and evening in Ford's Theater. With a hundred eyewitness accounts, is, is there a consensus that grows out of them, or is there more conflict than confusion? Well, it was it was quite fascinating when I started the process of actually uh, writing writing the paper because I was I limited myself to cover the events from when Lincoln entered the theater to when he was carried out. And I found there were several points in the uh, several events between in that time period that the eyewitness accounts in some cases had significant disagreement upon. And I spoke with uh, several lawyers, trial lawyers uh, because some of the eyewitness accounts were given in the, in the trial that followed the assassination. And I spoke with one uh, particular woman who traveled throughout the country as an expert witness on eyewitness accounts. She was a psychologist. And all of them provided me with the same guidance in terms of how to handle eyewitness accounts. They said the closer to the event that the account is recorded, the more accurate and the more valuable it is. And I remember uh, approaching uh, the psychologist, and I explained, you know, looking at this one particular event, she said, well, what's your time range for the accounts when they were recorded? And I said, well, I have a few that were recorded within hours of the event, and I have some that were recorded decades afterwards. And she instantly cautioned me that she said, when you're talking about years, you have to be extremely careful when handling these eyewitness accounts. She said the human memory just is not that accurate. And she even suggested that the, the reason human memory becomes more inaccurate over time is because when we tell an event, we tend to tell it not based on what we observed at the first time, but based on our last retelling. And so therefore, subsequent retellings simply become more and more inaccurate. And it was quite fascinating, Jerry, one particular point upon which I found great disagreement among the eyewitness accounts involved Booth's jump from the presidential box to the stage. And this, of course, addressed the question of Booth's broken leg. Did he break it on his escape route as his Exodus companion, and Dr. Mudd claimed, or did he break it when he jumped from the box to the stage, as he claimed? Well, when you look at the eyewitness accounts and you align them chronologically, I was quite 
stunned at what I discovered. All the eyewitness accounts recorded in 1865, the most accurate ones, all say that Booth ran off the stage. But as you read them through time, Booth develops a limp, which eventually becomes a broken leg, and by the 1930s, one account said he jumped off the jumped from the box of the stage, split his leg open, blood spilled on the stage, and a rope came and swooped him off. Wow. So, and so when you just line them up like that, you see that they become more inaccurate. Now, in the book, in the, I do conclude that I do not think Booth broke his leg when he jumped from the box to the stage, based on the eyewitness accounts. But anybody that knows the accounts would quick to point out that, well, Booth said that he did break his leg. How do you discount his eyewitness account? Because after all, he was the one that made the jump. What was fascinating, Jerry, there were three other points in Booth's diary. Now, he wrote this on his escape route through Maryland into Virginia. But there were three other points which I had already disagreed with Booth on, based on other eyewitness accounts. Uh, Booth said he was stopped outside the box but pushed on. Uh, best evidence suggests that the guard simply let him in due to his fame and his easily concealed weapons. Booth said there was a colonel by Lincoln's side. Rathbone was a major. And finally, Booth said that he stated sick semper before he shot Lincoln when the overwhelming eyewitness accounts suggest that he said sick semper tyrannus from the stage after he shot Lincoln. And so I began to look upon Booth's diary not as an accurate depiction of the events, but rather a book that sought to make Booth look more heroic, to look better. And obviously, it would, he would appear far more brave and courageous if he had to push his way into the box than if he was freely allowed to enter. It would be far more heroic to say he said six December before he shot Lincoln instead of, he, instead of afterwards, and it would look far better if there was, in fact, a colonel by Lincoln's side, not a major. And finally, and most importantly, for a person who prided himself on his horsemanship and his riding, it would sound far better to say that he injured his leg in the commitment of the deed rather than that he injured his leg when his horse fell on him during his escape. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And the same argument is taken up by Michael Kaufman in American Brutus, uh, an excellent book about Booth and the assassination, in which uh, he points out what Booth actually writes in the diary is, is a series of phrases, and one of them is, in jumping, broke my leg. Yes. Uh, which everybody has assumed, uh, as you point out, meant in jumping out of the, the box. But in context, it could have meant in jumping his horse over an obstacle. Yes. yes. And he may not have even been claiming that he, he did it uh, on stage. Exactly. But it does seem between those two, between the, the diary and between what you just reported, that there seems little doubt that uh, uh, the broken leg occurred later, not, not on the stage. Now, another problem with making that conclusion, um, which is an issue you address in your book, is the question of Dr. Mudd, because one of Mudd's uh, reasons for claiming that uh, he didn't know that Booth shot Lincoln was his position, as well as David Harold, Booth's exodus companion, is that Booth said he broke his leg 
and, you know, when Schwartz fell on him, as opposed to when he committed the assassination inside of Fort's theater. So I think there was a, there's a tendency also to discount this for fear that it might be used to help uh, indicate Mudd's innocence, when in fact I think that there is other evidence that you can consider to still make that case. I think so. I'm fascinated by what you said about memory, which applies not just to uh, uh, the events of Ford's Theater, but to all the primary sources we read of the Civil War, any soldier's account. The uh, uh, the idea that, that memories, when they're repeated over and over, change with each telling, because you're really just retelling the last telling, not the first event. There's an article, I recall reading years ago in, I think, Journal of American History, that compared the accounts of Jefferson and Adams uh, and how the Declaration was written, uh, and how their accounts changed over the years. Uh, yeah. Neither one of them uh, a dishonest man, but, but simply this is how things worked. Well, we're going to tell more uh, stories, honest and otherwise, in just a moment, but we're going to take a short break now. Uh, we'll be back with our guest, Tim Good, in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 